Good evening. Good to see all of you this evening. Thanks for joining us. All of you that are online, we welcome you as well as we've gathered together to again push the pause button halfway through the week and worship God and get, dive into his word and uh, continue to um, draw close to him. Well, um, our God is a great God and we sing about that a lot. We talk about that a lot. But I encourage you as we worship this this evening to uh, really grab onto that and let, don't let those words just pass by, but really focus on what he's done in your life today, yesterday, even last week, and what, he want, what he's doing in your life as we worship him and give thanks for his goodness to us. Let's stand together and worship him. Chain of 
salvation, our rock, the only solid ground. Nations rise and fall. Kingdoms once strong, now shaken. We trust forever in your name. In the name of Jesus. We trust the name of Jesus. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we live to higher. You are the only King forever, forevermore. You are victorious. You are the only King forever. Almighty God, we live to higher. You are the only King forever, forevermore. Unmatched in all your wisdom, in love and justice you will reign, and every knee will bow. for us, who loves us deeply. You did many great things while you were here. 
And you are greater and stronger than anything else in the universe.
is higher, no one like him. There is no one, absolutely nothing that compares with him. Who can compare to you, my King? Who can compare to you, my Lord? Who can compare to you, my friend? I looked and I found that there's no one like you and all the earth and you take my hand and you guide me on you show me the way to
to look in your face and be reminded and see your incredible love that comes from your gaze back to us. The answer to that rhetorical question is there is absolutely no one, nothing that compares with you. And we worship you and we thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to start a new book tonight. If you would, open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And you say, well, Carrie, I thought we were moving forward. Well, if you remember, we skipped John because we were doing Matthew and, and, and uh, Luke at the same time. So we, we're jumping back and going to do John um, in a little bit faster pace than the last time I did it. I think it took well over a year or so to, to go through it. So we're going to go a little bit faster than that. Um, what I'd like to do before we even get to that, though, I got news right before our study tonight that, um, and I don't have liberty to, to share his name, but a member of our church um, who has a chronic illness, um, difficulty breathing and some different things, was transported by ambulance here a couple hours ago and was admitted. So can we pray for him? Let's do that. So God, I just, uh, I lift up our brother to you, and Lord, I know that you have his life in your hands, that he trusts in you, as does his wife. And Lord, we know that uh, you know our days, and Father, we just lift him up to you. I pray, God, that they would be able to get a hold of what's going on and, and uh, that they create uh, some, some avenues to be able to bring comfort to him, ability to breathe and, you know, and, and be ministered to. Lord, I know that that you know every part of his journey. Lord, I also pray that your peace that passes all understanding would guard his heart and his mind and with his wife. As this is very concerning. Father, we pray for um, a pause in his, in his illness. I would pray for a healing. Asking God that, that you would do something supernatural and that you would bring that healing. We trust in you for the outcome. Lord, we know that you are greater than even the diseases that, Lord Jesus, when you died, you gave us victory over these diseases and even death. We shouldn't worry. But we do stand with him even now before we get into our study and we, we pray blessings over him and ask God that you would strengthen him even now in Jesus' name. Amen. When John, the Gospel of John, we come to this thing that we call a gospel. And so one of the questions I have for you is, what does the word gospel mean to you? When you hear the word gospel, does it mean a book in the Bible? Does it mean good news? Does it mean evangelism? There's a lot of different aspects of gospel, but it really means to tell the good news. 
to evangelize. It is part of it. But what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for the sins of the world. And those that put their faith and trust in Him will have everlasting life and they can receive that forgiveness. The Gospel of John is a unique Gospel that's different than the other three Gospels that are there. In many times, the Gospel of John is in Christianity is used as a primary tool for evangelism. One of the reasons why is because the Gospel of John really focuses on the simplicity of the message of the good news of what Jesus has done. Many people are encouraged to read the Gospel of John prior to reading anything else because for new believers it's the opportunity to be able to, to gather into that, that deeper element of faith that really displays these, these accounts and these stories. I had a conversation with a man that, w- that witnessed our baptisms that we were doing and, and especially the one on Sunday met with him Monday afternoon and he came and he said, I want to talk to you. I'd, I'd like to get baptized, but I've got a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he says, I have a hard time believing. I have a hard time with faith. I want to get baptized and I want to believe but I don't know how to believe. And he was honest. And, and we talked it through, and we spent about an hour and a half walking through elements of faith and what is faith and, and, and so on and so forth. At the end of that, he accepted the Lord and is going to be baptized soon, which is cool, which means we get to do another baptism. But it's interesting because he said, I want to get baptized. And I said, I can't baptize you because you're not saved. And at the end of it, I said, now I can baptize you. So now he's good to go. So we'll we'll have another baptism coming up here shortly. But in light of that, understanding what faith is. Now, how is John different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptics. And that's kind of like one of those fancy words. Sin or distinct means to see alike. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they teach the narratives... They, they teach things so that you can lay them aside each other and that they can see, you can see the account of the life of Jesus, the good news of the life of Jesus alike, whereas uh, John doesn't do that. John leaves out an awful lot of material as covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, there's a lot of things that, that, um, that are not in John's account. There's no Lord's Supper. There's no casting out of demons mentioned in Jesus' temptation. There is what's in there, an example of uh, water turned to wine, Nicodemus, the resurrection of of Lazarus. And so what John's focus was really more about Jesus' work that was going on in Judea, in the southern part, rather than in the Galilee in the northern part. And he really wants to emphasize this work that Jesus had done. And, And within this, the Gospel of John was written uniquely um, in such a way, and it was incorporated with the other Gospels. And this is something that you learn. It was called a codex. And the codex was really a scroll. So in the early church, what they did is they took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and created what's called the codex, or literally the four chapters. So the early church looked at the Gospel, and they talked about the Gospel, but it was within four chapters. So Matthew was a chapter, Mark was a chapter, Luke was a chapter, and John was a chapter. And that's how the early church read it, within that. These four chapters that were all put together to tell the account and to tell the story. Now, who was it that wrote it? Well, we know it's John the Apostle. John is the disciple that, 
that is in there, and he writes it. But what's interesting is in the account, in the Gospel of John, John doesn't mention himself as the author. In fact, he goes to great lengths to not mention himself at all. He'll say things like the disciple whom Jesus loved and other things. But he doesn't really bring up his name. He wants to be more or less anonymous and keep Jesus the highlight. He was the son of, of Zebedee, a fisherman. And he had a brother named James, one of the sons of thunder. He also would write the general letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. By the way, if you're going to Turkey with us, start reading Revelation now, especially the first part and the seven churches. And read through that closely because we're going to be at all of those churches, which is just an amazing thing to be able to think about. In fact, if you want to go, there's still room. I just got word we had a couple people add to the trip. I think we're at 21 now. And I'm looking at the sites. Awesome, awesome. And what's really awesome is it's thought, and we don't have concrete evidence, but it's pretty well accepted that John wrote this gospel from Ephesus, which is where we're going to be in one of the places that, that we're going to, somewhere around 85 to 95 A.D., according to the tradition. So what, why did John write it? What was his whole purpose? One thing. So that you will believe. In John chapter 20, verses 31, 30 to 31, says this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he's accounting for the other events. He said, but these, his gospel, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why John is a good evangelistic gospel to walk through with somebody. Because the author, John, wrote in such a way to the reader, whoever was going to read it, with the intention of using the material in this gospel to evangelize. With the sole purpose that by the time that you finish reading this account, you'll be able to believe in Jesus. You'll be able to have that educated faith. He focuses on seven signs to prove Jesus' authority. And seven is, is that number of completion that is in there. Uh, he reveals the seven I am statements. And so tonight what we're going to do is, is we're going to walk through what's called the prologue. It's verses 1 through 18, and you're going, well, only 18 verses? Oh. Have you ever gone to a restaurant? We had the privilege, uh, we were gifted a gift card to go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. When you go to a, you know, a place that serves up a good steak, right? You take your time. You enjoy it. And it, it, when, it, when it is good, you just savor every bite. We're not going to quite go that slow. But we do want to take our time uh, to walk through the prologue as John sets up this gospel account within that. So let's take a look at, at meeting Jesus. As he gives this introduction of meeting Jesus, verses 1 through 5, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that is come into being. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. So he wants to introduce Jesus, but he introduces Jesus in a significant way, and he says, in the beginning was the Word. Within this, in this pre-existing one, we start out in the beginning. John is pulling back all the way back into Genesis. 
and using the same language that he did in the creation account. Why? Because he's linking Jesus as the Son of God and as God, present as creation. So let me introduce you to Jesus, the eternal existing one. And it's important to understand that because we will get into Docetism. We'll take a look at Docetism a little bit later. But in this, there's this idea that Jesus was birthed in some cults. There's this idea that Jesus was just a uh, good teacher and that the Spirit of God came upon this good teacher and resided in this good teacher for a period of time. And then prior to his death, this Spirit of God had left this good teacher and that he was just a man that was inspired. And so there's all of these different concepts that have filtered in and ideas about Jesus. You want to do something interesting. Go for a walk anywhere. You can go down to farmer's market or go anywhere. Just ask somebody, who do you think Jesus is? And, and listen, to the question, or listen to their answers and, and find out how many an, different kinds of answers that people will have about who this Jesus is. Question, is it important that you have the right concept of who Jesus is? What happens if you have the wrong Jesus? You're not saved. You have to have the right concept. And, and it starts with the deity. So John introduces Jesus from the Old Testament as the existing one, the pre-existing one, creator God. And he goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 1 to 5. And he says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving on the surface of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light and it was good. God separated light from darkness. And God called the day night and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning in the first day. Well, in Genesis 1, we have the concept of light and darkness. And John brings that same concept into this. That Jesus is in the beginning and he's the Word. How did God create? With the Word. Things were spoken into being. With the Word. It, and the Word, when we think about words, it's, it's really the expression of our thoughts. You can listen to somebody's words and you can tell what's going on in their heart. So, when we think about the word word, this, this logos, this expression, who is Jesus? He's the pre-existing eternal one who is creator, who is the expression of God. So that we can hear and we can see this, this spoken word, this, and this agent of work. When we think about the Old Testament, they had the expression that was in the Torah. And it was the law. And the law was the self-expression of God in holiness. The law was established in order for man to be able to understand the holiness of God. But in the New Testament, the word of God is Jesus who is the living expression, which is an interesting concept when you think about it. The Torah, or the Old Testament law, is not living, but it is a mirror to show sin. It doesn't bring forth any life. But in the New Testament, the Logos, the existing one, the expression is the living expression, which is Jesus. And, guess what? Jesus gives life. And He breathes life into us through his existence, to man. And when we think about this whole thing, we, we start with the concept that 
Jesus always existed as God. Jesus never not existed. Always existed. Now, as you talk with different people, and, and even in the wrestling of their faith, there are some things that are so far beyond our comprehension and understanding that we just have to accept it. And we can come to this point of reason and understanding, but, but that's our limitations because it's, it's from a human condition, a fallen human condition. Can a fallen human ever comprehend the perfect eternal God? No. So we have to sit back and say, that's above my pay grade, God. I accept it. I'm good. But a lot of people wrestle with this. And so when we think about Jesus, he always existed as God, in unity with God. And it's called a Christological aspect. In other words, what you believe about Jesus. This Christological position. That Jesus existed as God, in the eternal being, in the Godhead. And God is indivisible. Question, what happens if God becomes divisible? It's called polytheism. God is not three gods. I had a, 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 there was a guy, a TV evangelist years ago, and he got all wrapped around the axle because he wanted to preach some new kind of theology and get into this thing. And he got in this concept. He says, well, you know, God is three in one, but yeah, he's three gods. And in each one of those positions of the Godhead, there are three other positions of God. And I listened, I said, do you understand what you're saying? You're saying there's nine gods. That doesn't work. And when we drift away from Scripture, the centrality of Scripture, we can come up with all kinds of whacked ideas. God is one, indivisible. What did Satan do in creating counterfeit gods? He created polytheism. Why? So that man can create a God in, after a manner that he wants. Polytheism is nothing more than man-made a deism that establishes a God under man's own concept or construct. I want a God for this, and I want a God for that. Why? Because if I get a God for this, or I get a God for that, then that God's going to let me do whatever I want, because I created him. No. One God. Indivisible. One authority. Presented in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see the word, he, the pronoun, he, singular, in the beginning, was with God, speaking of Jesus. And we know that God the Father honored God the Son at his baptism. But his deity didn't come upon him at baptism. He honored him at that time. And so Jesus is this eternal God. You look at verses 3 and 4. And we think about this life-giving authority. Look at 3 and 4. It says, all things. What do you think all means in Greek? <laughs> Good, you're Greek scholars. All means all. All things. Not some things. All things came into being. How? Through Him. In other words, Jesus is the agent of God's creation. He's the agent of God's creation. All things came into being through Him. You mean all things? Yes, all things. Even cockroaches? Yes, unfortunately, cockroaches. All things. Why is that important? 
It's important to understand that if he's the life-giving force, then he is sovereign over all life, is he not? And so if we understand that and we accept that, then we can accept God's sovereignty as that life-giving force, as the life-giving God, as the agent of creation. And notice how in Genesis he says, God says, let there be, and there was. And it's interesting because he says all things came into him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that was in there. What does John do? He closes the gap. He says, all things, you say, well, what about this? Okay, if you want to argue about it, nothing. Right? So he's got the positive and the negative aspect. Now you can't argue. He puts brackets on all creation. There is nothing in existence that didn't come through God in his creative force, which is, is amazing. Which also gives you a subset of understanding the fact that Satan can't create. He can't create. He can manipulate, but he cannot create with endless. That means that there's only one creator. And, and literally without him, and, and it reads in the original language, not one became that became. Nothing. Nothing. Everything. Again, speaks to his sovereignty. Paul would speak to this a little bit later in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, he says this, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and what? Interesting. Meaning what? Angels. Things that we cannot see. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That means governments. That means governments I like. That means governments I don't like. Powers principalities, all things have been created through Him. Note, and what? For Him. He is sovereign. He is before all things, and in Him all things are what? Held together. Please, stop getting wrapped around the axle because of things that are going on. Very simple. God's got it. There is nothing in existence that God did not create. There is nothing in existence that God is not sovereign over. And God holds everything together according to His will. And the quicker that we understand that, the more we can be in this condition of rest. The the easier it is for us to believe if we believe one thing, God is sovereign. In the beginning, God. If I can handle that... If I can accept Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. And the rest of the Bible is God's expression. Then I can rest in in His hand. I can be at rest in His hand within this. That there isn't anything, everything by Him, through Him, for Him, all things. He holds all things together within this. And you say, well, Carrie, well, then... How does this whole God creation thing work? Well, to give you an illustration, and again, illustrations are pretty much only as good as the paper they're written on or the iPad. But if we were to take a look at this partnership, the Father is the architect. The Son is the one that brings all the plans into existence, the worker. 
the Holy Spirit applied the plans and maintains the structure within that. God says, this is the way it'll be. Son says, as you say so, Father, I'm going to do this. And Holy Spirit says, this is how it's all going to be maintained within this structure. Everyone has a role within the, within these, the creation. And so we see that, that Jesus is that life-giving agent. Notice the dative. In verse 4, when you see the word in, it's, it's a dative and it's, and it's a location. So when you see in, it, 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 in the language it means that you're in. So you've got to think about something on the outside being put into, right? That's what it really means. So it says, in him is life. In Jesus is the life, and that life is the light of all men. The word life is used 36 times in this gospel. Do you think it's an important concept? Absolutely important. And it's really the technical term for eternal life. John uses it the same way. When you read the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they use this phrase, kingdom of God, multiple times. You guys remember that when we've gone through it? Multiple times, kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. John doesn't do that. What John uses is this word life or eternal life. And when we understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are self-existing, in other words, they're eternal, and self-existing. They don't need anything or anybody. I know you are very proud of who you are. God bless you, but God doesn't need you. He's self-existing. If everything went away, would God still be self-existing? Absolutely. God does not need us. We need Him. But He does not need us. Which is another element of just it's so awesome. Now, here's, the, here's where we take the dative. If God is self-existing, and He is, and as a Christ follower, we are placed into Christ, who is self-existing, then what do we attain? Eternal life. Because we were outside of that which was self-existing, and we are placed, not that we are self-existing, but we are placed into one who is self-existing. That's why our life is in Him. Does that make sense? In Him, within that. And so we see that that is a concept that John will get into. In John 5.26 it says, For just as the Father has life, note, in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also the life to have in Himself. Why? So that when he would present himself to us, we would find life in Jesus. That's amazing. Did God have to do that? Nope. It's called grace. It's called grace. To take those that, that were afar off and to bring them near. And then he says this life that, that he's speaking of is the light of men. Where Jesus would be the light of the world. Again, reflecting on the creation theme. But also to bring that light in John eight twelve it says, This Jesus again spoke, saying, I am, ego of me, the name of God. I am the light of the world. He who follows me, note, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a prohibitive statement. Now I want you to think about this. If you are outside of, of Christ, 
because of your sin, but because of forgiveness, you are placed in Christ. And Jesus is the light of the world. And those that are in him and walk in this world, they will not walk in darkness. Why? Because they can't. Because Jesus is the light. So many Christians, let me rephrase that. So many people are self-deceived thinking they are Christians. Because they say that I am walking with Christ, but they are really, and then living in sin. And John says you can't do that. You're either in or out. You're either in Christ or you're not. And your actions are going to be reflected. Now we're talking about, you know, okay, I just messed up. We're talking about the way of life. The condition of that life. Where Jesus says that if you if you are in Him, you will not walk in darkness. The habits and the practice of your life will not be... He who believes in me might live. He who believes in me will live if he just goes to church all the time, tithes and... Goes, goes on a mission trip or something. No. One condition. One condition. What is the condition? Faith. To trust. To be in that condition. And if you notice what he says in 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Well, what is John talking about there? Well, Jesus is the light of God and He would come into the world, but the world wouldn't recognize Him. Why wouldn't the world recognize them? Because they're in darkness. It won't make sense. Just as the light would come of creation into the world, it had to bust through. In Genesis 1, 2 and 3, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Note, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water until, and it's key, until God said, let there be light. Darkness was the general condition of all of this nothingness that was there. It was nothingness. The word, the fancy word is ex, ek nihilo, nilo. It means out of nothing God created. It's not like God said, hey, there's some dust particles out there. I think I'm going to create something. No, that's an assembly. God created out of nothing. Out of nothingness. Until God said. And the picture in Genesis points towards the actions of Jesus, where is in the land and in the world until Jesus came. It was a nothingness. It was darkness. They were spiritually dark. And then Jesus came in. And that light of the incarnation came and revealed God to men. The problem is, and we see it today, I'll rephrase that to a question. Do we see it today that men love darkness rather than the light? Do people love sin rather than righteousness? That is a scary thing. When you have a whole generation, a whole globe, all of mankind loving Sin and darkness rather than light. It tells us that we are close to the end. That the conditions are like in the days of Noah. The conditions are like the days when Jesus would come into the incarnation, which prepares us for the revelation of Jesus.
in the end days. And trust me, I believe we're close. Now would be a good time. But he's waiting. He's waiting until all that would be saved would be saved. And he's waiting. Yet, it's interesting because he uses the frame, framework of judgment in John three nineteen. It says, this is the judgment. That lights came into the world that men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. God is a just God. And what he did with Christ, what he did with Jesus, is by presenting Jesus the light into Israel, revealing their darkness, God was then just to judge them. Because they had the condition of light and Jesus in their person, in Jesus, they're with them, and they rejected that. Now, you take that and you extrapolate that out to the global condition. And you have the Holy Spirit that's present. The Jesus in you. And men are going to love darkness. Then listen to the Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit, which presents this condition of judgment, which sets up for the book of Revelation. And all of that. Are we there? I think we're getting close. The things that are happening are amazing to me. And the world doesn't understand these things. I was talking with somebody and, and, and we were talking about uh, faith and, and all. And I said, you know, it's interesting. You can, you can sit in, in service and four or five years. You can sit here. You can sit right there. And you can live a Christian moral life, you can live a Christian ethic life, but not live the Christian life. And the individual said, I just, I don't understand. This is part of our conversation Monday night. I don't understand. I said, you won't. Because you're not saved. The Holy Spirit's not in you. It's, it's foolishness to you. You've got to start with a translator. And the translator is the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, that takes the Word of God and enlightens you to this and brings it to light. There's a lot of people that look at Scripture and they go, I don't get it. I don't get it. Now, it's one thing not to comprehend it because maybe some of the words are hard or something like that. Some of the concepts you have to work at. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the person that says, I just don't get it at all. You want to get it? Get saved. Ask Jesus to come in, forgive you of your sins, fill you with His Spirit, and cause you to be born again. Because Paul would write, the natural man cannot discern spiritual things. You just can't. And that's why the world does not understand the lights that's there. It's their fallen condition. John would refer to this again in his general epistle in John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Notice what he says this. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers... Because you know him and if you've been with him from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. And I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. And I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Why is John writing to these different generations? The fathers, the young men, and the children. Why? Because when John wrote 1 John, the Gnostics were going around and trying to preach a different Jesus. And he's coming against them and saying, look, you've got to get squared up. I'm writing to you to square you up. You've got to believe in the right Jesus. And not listen to what these other people are saying. 
John goes on with his prologue and he says, so this is Jesus. And then he turns and he says, now this is the witness that set up and prepared everybody for Jesus. And his name was John, different John, John the baptizer, although John the apostle doesn't call John, John the baptizer. No, he says, and then there came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And there was the true light which came into the world and enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world didn't know him. Now, when you look at this in this this concept, the first thing that he says is, and, and keep in mind, John's writing this in, you know, 85 AD. So he's writing it back and he says, so he, this is who Jesus is, and this was the forerunner, and his name was John. He was a messenger. What was he there to do? He was there to proclaim or to witness about the light so everybody would come to a, a place of believing. Now, this John that he speaks of was the son of the priest of Zacharias. You remember the account. He was the cousin of Jesus. Mary had come to see Elizabeth, the relative, and the baby leapt in a room. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, 15 to 17, it was prophesied, it says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their Lord, their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John was the last prophet. And he was the link from what the Jews would understand as a prophet to Jesus. He was to make that, that bridge that connection that was there. He was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children and their fathers, so that they will not come and smite the land with a curse. John needed to come, and he came as this witness to testify about the light. Why? So that those that would believe in Jesus will live. To prepare. Do you realize that you have people that prepare you or prepared you for faith? Think about those people that were witnessing to you, that were inviting you to church, that were talking to you, that, that made those connections, that started creating an awakening in you. Now, God is the one who saves, but what are we to do? We're to be that witness. We're to be the John in people's lives. We're to testify about the light, about Jesus, so that when people can see Jesus, they'll come to faith. Are you doing that? Are you telling people? Because I tell you this, the world is in a, a world of hurt and a land of darkness within this. And John had a method pretty whacked method. I don't suspect that you really want to do it. He wore camel's hair and leather belt and eating grasshoppers and sucking on honey out in the middle of the desert. But he looked like an Old Testament prophet and people were listening to him and he was baptizing unto repentance. 
His baptism was to make people aware that they're sinners. Well, how can you be a modern-day John? One of the things you can do is don't condone sin, confront it. When you see somebody in sin, call it out and say, look, it, that's, that's sin. That separates you from God. And God hates sin, loves you, hates sin. And as long as you're in this condition, you're, you're always going to be separated from God. And, and God's not going to make any sense. So we've got to deal with your sin. So if you, acknowledge, if you get somebody to acknowledge the fact that they're a sinner, isn't that the first step? If you can get them to acknowledge the fact that they are a sinner, if they sin before a holy God, that's the first step. Why? Because now you've, you've brought to them what the illness is, and now, and the diagnosis, and now you can give to them the cure, which is who? Jesus. That's what John was doing. And so John the Apostle is saying, there was a prophet that brought about the awareness of this sin in John 3, 3, it says, And he came all the district around Jordan, preaching of baptism and repentance for forgiveness of sins, to set people up for Jesus. And then to testify about Jesus. Notice he says, He came to witness and testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He, was, he wasn't the light. You don't want to be somebody's Savior, do you? No. You can't. You need to point them towards Jesus. Point them towards Jesus. And so, literally, it says, This one came for a witness, so that he might testify concerning the light that all might believe. This bearing witness is used 50 times in John's Gospel. 50 times. Bearing witness. Now, you couple that with the Great Commission, where we're told to go and to make disciples and baptizing all men, right? Do you think being a witness is a big deal for God? Is witnessing a big deal? Yeah, absolutely it is. That's why we're still here on this rock. If you weren't here to be a witness, then why does God keep you around on the planet? I mean, really, you think about it. If you get saved and you have eternal life and eternal life begins at salvation, then why doesn't it you just you get saved, boom, you're gone? You get saved, boom, you're gone. You get saved, boom, you're gone. Right? To me, that's effective. That works. God says, no. You get saved, go tell somebody. You get saved, go tell somebody. Why? So that they can get saved and they can go tell somebody. They can get saved and they can go tell somebody. John uses witness 50 times. Why? Big deal. Because that's God's plan. And he, and he goes on and he talks about being that light. Why? Because the light removes the darkness. Darkness cannot exist where there is light within this. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said and spoke to him and says, I am, ego and me, the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in that darkness. Again, he does that. And all will believe. Now, one of the key elements that I think is different from the church today, from the church of the first century, and you've got to get this. The church today has faith in faith. In other words, they create these faith systems. Or what they would call these spiritual experiences. 
The church today runs into this faith in faith. Well, I have faith in who? Well, I really have faith in faith. I really. The object of your faith is what saves you. If you have faith in a religious institution, that's faith in faith. If you have faith in your good works, that's faith in faith. If you have faith in a person, that's faith in faith. Is that saving faith? The object of your faith is, is what's going to save you, and that has to be Jesus. So when we talk about the early church, they only had faith in Jesus. They only had faith and testified in Jesus. How do I know it's different? I can tell you. Here's how you know it's different between faith and faith and faith in Jesus. When people witness, what do they talk about? You need to be, you really need to become a Christian. Come to my church. That's faith and faith. You really need to get your, your life right. Come talk to the pastor. That's faith and faith. You really, you, really, you want life to get better? Then, then you need to do some things that are, just change your life. That's faith and works. Faith and faith. You really want your life to be changed? Trust in Jesus. That's faith in Jesus. Do you hear those conversations rattling around? We need to be concise. Don't teach people to have faith in faith. Teach people to have faith in Jesus. And that's what John was about. That's what the early church was about. That's why we would see many, many people come to faith. Because it was always pointing to Jesus. He wanted to avoid confusion at all costs. And he says, don't follow after me, John the Baptist. No, don't follow after me, follow after Jesus. Within this. John the Apostle continues in verses 9 through 11. And he says this, And there was the true light which came coming into the world enlightens every man. So he goes back to the concept of Jesus being that light. And he says, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were in his own, who were his own, didn't receive him. But as many, note, as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we look at this, and the, the one thing that we see is that Jesus is that true light that enlightens every man. What is that true light? If Jesus is the expression of God to men, and you want to know who God is, then where should you look? To Jesus. Everything you want to know about God, look to Jesus. Because the, He's the full expression of God. In fact, in John chapter 14, verses 7 to 9, Philip was wanting to know who God is, and he's talking to Jesus, says this, If you had known me and would have known my Father also, from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen who? The Father. How can I say to you, show the Father? Well, that's a dumb question. I and the Father are one. You want to see the Father? Just look at me. I am the expression of the Father. But Philip was, was coming at it from a totally different aspect. A divided God. And Jesus says, no. And he is the true light. 
not the false light, but the true light, and to be able to recognize Him and recognize Him through creation. There are two forms of revelation that God has given to us. You know what they are? What are the two forms of revelation that God's given us? General revelation and special revelation. General revelation is all of creation. That God declares Himself through all of creation. Romans chapter 1. All of creation declares the glory of God. But the special revelation that saves is Jesus. That is there. The specific revelation that is there. Man's going to be judged. And judged justly. And he's going to be judged justly. And so many people say, well, you know, what about the guy that's out in Africa that has never seen the Bible, has never heard about Jesus? What's he going to be judged on? General revelation. By what standard? I don't know. It's God's standard. But I'm here to tell you, since you're asking that question, let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> what did I just do? I just took him and made him accountable because I'm giving him Jesus. Now he's going to be judged based on what he knows about Jesus. And he can't say, well, nobody told me. I'm not talking to the guy in, you know, the bush. I'm talking to you. And now you know. Now what are you going to do about it? But so many people, they, they, side, they try to sidetrack it. We need to understand that, that Jesus came so that we can see God. To redeem mankind. Satan wants to blind people from seeing God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul would write to the church at Corinth, and we had read it when we studied it. It says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they no, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan's job is to keep people blinded in the darkness. The believer's job is to allow people to see Jesus and bring them into the light. That's that spiritual warfare that's going on within that. And we need to come against that by, by preaching Jesus all that much more. And knowing Jesus is knowing more than just the facts about Him. It's knowing Him personally within this. The problem with the Jews is that they rejected that. Israel rejected Jesus. Can you imagine being part of the Sanhedrin that was on the council that tried Jesus, heard about His resurrection, created the lie that His disciples stole the body, and even to the point of death, and then they died in that unbelief, and they physically saw Jesus, and then stand before that judgment seat, and then see Him, and they'll see Him, and go, oh, did we mess up. Amazing when we think about that. Israel is God's son, God's chosen people, and Jesus came to them first. Why? Because it was God's intention that the gospel would be given to Israel and then Israel would proclaim that gospel message to the Gentiles. That was God's intention. Still did it, but Israel got put on the sideline and now the church presents that gospel. As a result, God blesses those whom believe. Notice, he says, For as many receive them, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's two elements that are in there. One is your right and privilege. Do you realize, do you realize how blessed you are that simply by putting your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you were adopted as a child of the Most High, of God? He gives you, it's a gift, it's a grace gift. He gives you the right to be called a child of God. The next time Satan tries to remind you of what a slug you are, call him a liar. Say, no, I'm a child of the king. I am a child of the Most High God. And you're a liar. And don't accept it. Not only that, that privilege, that right, this, this great grace gift that is there, that you've been taken out of being a child of wrath to the child of God. You've been transformed and adopted into God's family with all of the blessings, which is a whole other study in itself. Because when you're adopted as a, as a child of God, you receive all the inheritance of the family. That is there. And it's a grace gift there. And to those who were, notice, verse 13, who were born... They're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, they're born again. It's a spiritual birth that is all part of that. Not by human effort or human will. Within that. And so all we do is we respond to God. Lastly, he goes through this. Verses 14 to to 18, and we see the fullness of God. He says, And then the Word, which he spoke about in John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word, same Logos, became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory. The glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of, note, grace and truth. John testifies about him and cried out, saying, This is the, he whom I said, He who comes after me is higher rank than me, and I existed before me. For of his fullness we have received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized, note, realized, through Jesus Christ. We'll get to that. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has, note, explained him. So what does he say? Well, again, he goes back to this Logos, being eternal. The Word became flesh that was eternal, dwelt among us. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out to the world. Okay? So what does he say in his letter? He says, test them. How do I test them? What is the test that I use to tell whether or not they're really of God? It's what they say about Jesus. Notice, he says, But you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come, note, in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Those that are against him. What was going on? One of the things about the Gnostics is they had this concept that that which is body 
is sin, and that which is spirit can be pure, and the pure cannot mix with the, the body, the sin. They have to be separate. Therefore, God could never take body. Therefore, Jesus never came in the body. Well, is that a different Jesus? Absolutely, it's a different Jesus. And if Jesus never came physically in the flesh, then Jesus physically in the flesh never died on the cross on your behalf, thus completing the sacrifice. That means that the whole cross would have been a joke. And that didn't happen. If you remove the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you remove man's hope for salvation. The payment, the atonement, the propitiation for your sin. It is a total lie. And notice that's why he says it's the Antichrist. And, and there's a lot of Christians, or so-called Christians, they'll differ on a lot of different issues. There are some people who will differ on baptism, per se. You know, How do you baptize? Well, you sprinkle, you dunk, you spit. I don't know. They go into this whole thing. And other Christians will, you know, they'll differ on the gifts. Well, do you speak in tongues? Do you not speak in tongues? They'll differ on their Bibles. I'm King James. I'm King James only. Uh, I'm NIV positive or whatever their case is. They'll, whatever their thing is. And there's a lot of Christians, they'll differ on different things. The one thing, the one thing that defines a true child of God is what they say about Jesus and the incarnation. That's why John says in his letter, you want to know? Ask him who Jesus is. I can tell you this. Jesus is not Lucifer's brother. As some cultists would say. That he was born of a spirit mother and, a, and, a, and, and God father. Inhabits other planets and all of these other things. No. No. And he wasn't a good teacher that, that just was inspired. And so within this, we've got to understand that there is one Jesus. And, and Docetism, at the time of John's writing, is this. It was a heresy that Jesus was fully divine and only appeared to be human and only appeared to die on the cross. So as John is writing this, he's writing specifically against this cultic theology that was wrong. That Jesus only appeared to die on the cross, but he became the flesh. Now, a lot of people get weirded out by this and they say, well, how did God do this? Well, turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. It's called the kenosis. And the word kenosis is, does not mean subtraction. It means addition. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard himself, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, or kenosis, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. Jesus did not reject his divine nature. He didn't lose his divine nature when he came. He added to himself humanity. 
Nothing was subtracted. And he chose that while he was on this earth, that certain elements of his divinity he would choose not to exercise. For example, omnipresence. He chose to be in one place at one time. But still he exercised omniscience. He still exercised omnipotence. So there were certain things that he chose to do, but he added to himself humanity. Why? So that in every way... He would experience life as you and I did and yet be without sin in order to be the perfect sacrifice that he would die a physical death and be that perfect sacrifice. You change any of that and you have another theology. You have a different Jesus within that. And so we see that, that within this, we see this, this element that is there and, and John testified about him and says, this is the one whom I said who comes after me. Again, he goes back into this, that he is the only begotten. And the word only begotten there, whenever you look at it, it's called monogenous. Monogenous means only begotten or one of a kind. And the word glory is doxa. The self-expression of God. The last element that John covers in the self-expression of God, I think, is important. What does he say about the self-expression? That Jesus is the self-expression of God in, note, grace and truth. Grace and truth. The law would present sin. It would, it would challenge us. It was given through Moses. But grace and truth, note, was realized through Jesus. I'm given the law, which is a mirror to my sin. You want to understand what grace and truth is? It's only through Jesus. Only through Jesus. You want truth, real truth? Only through Jesus. It's not through whatever your, your social media is, a news channel or some idea. Only through Jesus. You want grace, real grace? The gift of grace? Only through Jesus. Don't look for people to give you grace. They might be nice once in a while. Real grace comes through Jesus. When you realize that your sin separates you, but by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. God gives us that gift of grace within this. We think about this grace gift that has been shown towards us. And... and expressed to us. And it's a grace and truth of the unseen God revealed to us by the seen God to be able to take that which was unseen to be seen. Verse 18. That at any time the only begotten, the monogenous of God, the one of a kind in the bosom of the Father and Jesus explained him. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus within that. You want grace and truth? Look at Jesus. If you want the law, look at the Ten Commandments. But if I had my choice, law or grace? What you want? Grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give to us grace and truth. I think that you give us the Lord Jesus. And in this, that we can see that, Lord Jesus, you are the light of our life. May we walk in that light. Not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. 
Lord, there's so many people in this world today that are dying because they don't know you. They have faith in faith. They have faith in works. They have faith in themselves. But the only way for life is to have faith in you, Lord Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross, despised the safe, and is set down in heaven. That is our hope. Lord, I pray as we go out tonight that we would honor you with our lives. Maybe be a little bit more like John the Baptist. Bring people to you that they can experience that same grace and truth that we've experienced ourselves. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. To our God we lift up one voice. To our God we lift up one song. To our God we lift up one voice. Sing hallelujah. To our God we lift up one voice. To our God we lift up one song. To our God we lift up one voice. Singing hallelujah. To our God we lift up one voice. To our God we lift up one song. To our God we lift up one voice. Singing hallelujah. To our God we lift up one voice. To our God we lift up one song. To our God we lift up one voice. Singing hallelujah. Hallelujah. Singing hallelujah, hallelujah, singing hallelujah, hallelujah, singing hallelujah, hallelujah, make his praise glorious, glorious, glorious. 
Praise Jesus. Have a blessed rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.